0: But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.
3: Hang up and listen is brought to you by DraftKings. One week fantasy football at DraftKings means every moment could take you closer to a life changing payday. Play when you want and pick a new team every time. Use the code HANGUP to play free for a shot at a million bucks in this week's Millionaire Maker event. Only at DraftKings.com. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of September 21st, 2015. On this week's show, we'll be joined by Ken Rosenthal of Fox Sports to talk about what may be the greatest group of rookies in the history of Major League Baseball. We'll also discuss the rise of IMG Academy, a for-profit high school in Florida that's hoping to change how elite young athletes in football and other sports prepare for professional careers. And we'll ascend to the top of fabled Mount Midoriyama to assess the phenomenon of American Ninja Warrior, the game show slash athletic enterprise that's just completed its latest season on NBC. Joining me this week in Washington D.C. Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. What about a ninja warrior book? Podcast Ninja Warrior. I don't. I don't think this podcast requires any upper body strength. Maybe mental fortitude. What? <laughs> can everyone Stephen, see that? Stefan right. just lifted a glass of water to his mouth. Ooh. <laughs> Technique I nailed. It seems easy that from the event. outside. That's called
4: Mars. That obstacle lifting the glass of water because you were not sure there might be some water on Mars. <laughs>
3: <laughs> we'll work on the title for that obstacle. With us from New York is Mike Pasca, the host of Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. With Mike Pesca, or is it more of a Michael Pesca day today?
1: No, we're going to be Mike Pasca. They're going to what's up me with me the Michael Pesca? <laughs> What's up with the Michael Pesca? That's our recurring segment where Michael Pesca gives you updates on Mike Pesca. It was a thing about travel. But I'm going to predict that this podcast will rival the Panoply Network's Juggalo podcast, our insane clown podcast, for mentions of the word ninja. But this will be the only week that that's true.
4: There was a oh, travel I remember snafu. now the Snafu. There was a the travel passport snafu. snafu. Mm-hmm. Mike Pesca booked the ticket. Mm-hmm. Michael Pesca is the passport.
1: That's right. <laughs> it's a Jeff and Jeffrey Leonard situation to evoke a San Francisco Giant. I'm not going to say great. What's less than great? A San Francisco Giant good. He was a good. One flap down. Well, there's a public good. There's not a public great. But a player can be a great. <laughs> he was actually more of an okay. I'm going to look up his war.
3: So in the interest of transparency while Mike looks up his war, do you guys think that we should continue Whimsy Watch? There has been some requests. I think maybe we proved our point on whimsy watch maybe mm-hmm. there'll be other recurring features in the future
1: well whimsy's fun okay. well on the one hand it's true we proved our point on the other hand who else is staking the flag of whimsy in the very serious turf of the NFL i think it falls on us to do this and we're helping the league and <laughs> the sport mm-hmm. A whimsical vexillologist mike pesca or is it <laughs> michael pesca
3: <laughs> well I guess if people want us to keep doing it, send the Whimsy watches to the Facebook page. You can email them to us at com. The hard work of Whimsy identification should not just fall on on us alone. We need the Hang-Up Army out there uh, looking for us. And maybe we'll pick it up next week. We need to crowdsource our Whimsy.
1: By the way, Jeffrey Leonard had a war of 3.4 in both uh, 1983 and 1984. And that was pretty good, though Mm. it was bracketed by two years of negative war which, which I think,
3: some call peace. <laughs> I think the um, the thing right below great is player. So instead of baseball great, baseball player. All right, our bonus segment for Slate Plus members this week. We're going to have uh, Ken Rosenthal on our uh, first segment. We're going to have him stick around and ask him how he balances uh, print and television and how a field reporter at a major league baseball game is different from an NFL sideline reporter. Uh, to hear this bonus segment and others like it, on Hang Up and Listen and other Slate shows, other Panoply shows, sign up for Slate Plus at slatecom plus. You can get a free 2-week trial at slate.com/hangupplus. More than almost any other sport, baseball is a skill-based game mandating years of training and refinement before a player can move from the minors to the major leagues. At least that's what we've always thought. But it's harder to make that argument this year with the arrival of what might be the best group of rookie hitters in the history of the sport. The Cubs have the trio of power-hitting third baseman Chris Bryant, middle infielder Addison Russell, and slugger Kyle Schwarber. The Indians' 21-year-old Francisco Lindor and the Astros' 20-year-old Carlos Correa are already two of the best shortstops in the game. The Mets' Michael Conforto, the Twins' Miguel Sano, and the Cardinals' Randall Grichuk are all slugging well over 500. And the Dodgers' Jock Peterson has 25 home runs. Peterson's L.A. teammate, Corey Seager, who just got called up, might be the best hitter of any of these guys. And the rookie pitchers aren't bad either. Sindregard, Joe Ross, Aaron Nola. If you want to expand the list of young talent to include major leaguers 25 and under, we can throw in Bryce Harper, Mike Trout, Giancarlo Stanton. And Madison Bumgarner. We w- He's small. He is. We wanted to have Ken <laughs> Rosenthal on, but we just ran out of time because I was listing so many <laughs> rookies. Um, but now joining us to discuss baseball's youth movement is Ken Rosenthal, senior writer for FoxSports.com and a field reporter for MLB on Fox on television and a former Daily Pennsylvanian, what do you call it, co-editor? Well, Kenny was sports editor. I was news editor the same year. And yeah, you you were friends. It's an inspiring story for us all. It's Uh, really
4: a buddy picture waiting to happen.
3: (laughs) Uh, Ken, thanks for joining us. Sure, and
2: we were friends, and it should be inspiring. (laughs) It was inspiring
3: at the time.
4: Sports and news did not get along. I bridged the gap. I was the the, the Habib, (laughs) the Philip Habib of the Daily Pennsylvania Newsroom. (laughs) (laughs) Let's
3: talk about baseball, shall we? (laughs) Um, so, Uh, So, Ken, the question that I have here is whether this is kind of an anomalous event or... Whether there's a trend here, like with the 83 NFL draft, Jim Kelly, Dan Marino, John Elway, that was just, you know, there just happened to be good quarterbacks this year. Is that what's happening in in baseball or is there some bigger story?
2: That's a great question and I wish I knew the exact answer. We all have some theories and we can talk about those theories, but I don't know that this is anything more than an aberration. Certainly over the last few years, as you mentioned, we've seen an influx of young talent even preceding this class, and that starts with Harper and Trout, and now we're seeing even more young players come in. Now, a couple of things are in play here. One, it just seems that teams want the cheaper young talent playing in the big leagues, especially when, in some cases, they're giving these guys decent bonuses as amateurs to become professional. The sooner these guys get here, the sooner you get their cheap labor for three years, and then when they start making the bigger money, that's when that kicks in. The other thing, and I can't put my finger on this, but it seems that players are coming up with a little bit more polish than perhaps in the past. In the United States, that could be because they play year-round in many cases. Internationally, certainly Lindor and Pereira from Puerto Rico, they grew up, in that sense, playing year-round. But I don't know that that is part of this any more than anything else. So it's really hard to say, but this is an extraordinary group. I don't know that we'll see this kind of group for the next 10 to 15 years. This is kind of a comet going through the sky, and they're all dropping at once.
4: Jeff Passan had a a good piece a couple months ago on Yahoo Sports taking a look at just how good this class is. And he looked at some (laughs) fan graphs data, and it really just blows other rookie classes out of the water. I mean, the differential in war... Between 2015 and 1987, which is second, is crazy. It's, I mean, it, it is not even close. Like one and a half times. It's like one and a half times. Like and, a half times. Um, and which does make you wonder. I mean, one thing that popped in my mind was that long term development plans on the part of some franchises, including the Cubs and the Houston Astros, seem to be coming to fruition at the same time. And the incentive is there to bring these young guys
2: up. That's true. But at the same time, Stefan, no one expected either of these teams would be this good this quickly. In fact, the famous Sports Illustrated cover, at least famous in baseball, was your 2017 World Series champs, the Houston Astros. I don't know that anyone picked them to go to the playoffs this year, or many people did. And even the Cubs are ahead of schedule. And the reason they're ahead of schedule, much more so even than the Astros, is that their young players are ahead of schedule. We knew Bryant would be good. I don't know that we knew quite this good. Addison Russell, the same. Schwarber wasn't even expected to make an impact this year. You've got Jorge Soler as well. Javier Baez just rejoined the team. He is a top prospect. He's kind of the forgotten man, and he has come on again. So they have definitely taken their plan, used their plan, and put it in place and waited for it to work. But they didn't think it would work this soon. They would tell you that. So... Again, a lot of this is kind of coincidence. Things just happening at the same time. But that said, it's an amazingly talented group of players coming into the game. And this is a sport too that it seems fans value this more than in other sports. Fans in baseball really look forward to seeing the prospects. They talk about them as they develop through the minors. A little different in football and basketball when they're in college, they know who they are. But it's always that era of mystery, and this year, one after another has come up and just made a tremendous impact.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I mean, if you want to talk about the big difference that the young players have made, the Houston Astros, the reason, the reason they're no longer in first, they've they they've surrendered that, they're game out now, the reason they're doing as well as they have since Carlos Correa was called up is because of Carlos Correa being called up. If he was not on the team, I'd think they'd be out of the playoff race. The impact that this guy has, of all the guys you've talked about, this is a 20-year-old who is excellent at shortstop, who is amazing at offense, and that's the guy I could understand a lot of the other players, he, he was a number one pick, but he has come up and had such a big impact, and he's going to win Rookie of the Year. Of all the guys that make my jaw drop, he's the one that makes my jaw drop the most. How about you, Ken?
2: Well, we has had a huge impact, but they were off to a good start even before he got there. And there was a big, whether he should have gotten there soon, this is a whole different issue in the sport, how these guys are held down a little bit longer than they should be in many cases, but... As far as making a difference, he absolutely has made a difference, and a huge difference. Now, it's so interesting about Correa, as a rookie, we thought, man, this guy's AL Rookie of the Year. We thought that after about a week. And yet, Endor came up around the same time, started more slowly, but has come on crazy in the last two months, really since the All-Star break, one of the better hitters in the game. And actually a better defensive player, at least according to the metrics, than Correa. So every time you think we're seeing the next best guy or the best guy to come, here comes another one, and Corey Seager qualifies in the same way. Now, he's a little bit different than those two, although he does play shortstop, but that's what's been so remarkable about the season in general, that, wow, we were so impressed by Bryant and Russell. Here comes Schwarber. We were so impressed by Correa. Here comes Lindor and Sineau another one. And then Corey Seager at the end of the line, it's just been really from the perspective of someone looking at this sport who follows it regularly, all fans and media. It's been breathtaking.
3: You mentioned um, the trend of teams keeping guys in the minors for a little bit longer than maybe they should because of service time considerations, because they want to have team control for longer so they don't have to get into free agency. But on the other hand, you know, there's a huge incentive for teams to lean on guys like Correa, Lindor, and the you know dozen other that we mentioned because of the way that the sport is structured financially. Because you do have team control for what's increasingly looking like the prime years of these players, and you can have them on low salaries. Um, so, how has that affected the? kind of economics of the game and the decisions that teams make, that the guys who are often the best players in the major leagues are making the least.
2: That's just the nature of how the sport works economically. It's a little bit different than some others. And the way it works is, for people who don't know, players between zero and three years of service, their salaries are essentially controlled by the club. They make around the major league minimum of 515000 maybe slightly above for those three years. Then arbitration starts for the following three years. Salaries incrementally go up and dramatically. And then free agency. Now, what we're seeing in some of these cases, Bryant is one in particular, Correa is another. Teams refuse to start the clocks, their service time clock, until they have an extra year of control. In Bryant's case, Cubs wanted an extra year of control so they'd have him for seven instead of six. They had to wait a couple of weeks. In Correa's case, they waited longer. The Astros did to prevent him from getting an extra year of arbitration. This is the way it works. Okay, we all get it. The problem is, if the Cubs finish a game out in the wild card race, a game behind the Pirates, and don't get home field advantage and lose to the Pirates in Pittsburgh, people will rightly ask, hey, wouldn't you have been better off getting two more weeks of Chris Bryant, you might have won a game or two more. Correa, you can ask the same thing, particularly since they're in such a close race here for both the AL West and Wild Card. And these are fair questions. And I've written a lot about, hey, something has to give here, because it's not right when you don't have the best players playing. There's something inherently wrong with that. And yet, the way the sport is economically structured, you can understand why the teams are making the decisions that they are.
4: Well, that argues for two things. One would be the teams and the Players Association in the next round of collective bargaining finding a way around this. And the second would be the teams in the interim just say, it's in our economic and competitive interests to sacrifice that year of service and i do wonder is this possibly a new trend maybe teams are going to be less deliberate and controlling about development because they recognize the benefits that they're getting from these younger players whether that's because development is better because of as you mentioned year-round players these players are more equipped to play at a big league level at a younger age or because as you, as you just pointed out, it could impact making the playoffs. Do you think that there will be some sort of change? Are front offices sort of watching what's happened this year and, and planning for, for the future?
2: I actually don't believe that there will be a change. And I go back to the Brian decision, which was really hotly debated at the time, whether you should make the team out of opening day or you wait three weeks and get that extra year of service. And, most people were saying at the time, not just the Cubs folks, but even their fans, hey, we want the extra year. All we'll will wait the three weeks. We'd rather have that extra year. And you can understand that because of all the benefits that that could provide. So I don't expect teams are going to look at it any differently under the current system. Now, the other question you asked, Stefan, is will the system change? It's difficult to do the way they have it structured now because you have to have at some point an arbitration starting point and at some point a free agency eligibility starting point. But at the same time, maybe there are incentives to bringing guys up you can build in. I I don't know the answer. I just know that the current system is not the best for the competitive integrity of the sport. Or for fans. For fans and for teams. Hey, if the Cubs miss here or the Astros miss any of these teams, the Twins, what if you had had Miguel Sano up sooner? Now you can argue in his case he needed more development. In each of these cases, you can argue that. But it's kind of folly when teams argue that about Chris Bryant or Carlos Correa. These guys were ready.
1: It was, yes. It's sometimes clear, but it's so different from the other sports. You know, in football, obviously, every football game is ten times as important as a baseball game, and there'd be no point to—there's no development system putting a guy on a taxi squad. In basketball, just because of the longer system and the fact that they have the development league. But in baseball, every once in a while, it's clear that a guy's ready to go. But then sometimes guys— Prove it at double A, prove it at triple A, and you have to move them up. And I don't know that that's a bad thing. On the one hand, I was thinking if there was a way to craft the free agent eligibility system so it coincides not with some random arbitrary date six weeks into the season, but so it coincides with the actual start of the year, that might be a good thing. On the other hand, just the actual, you know, realities of baseball make it so different from other sports. Well, that's
2: true. There's no question it's different. And... That's what kind of makes this it, all special too, because I agree. Football is different, basketball is different. Hockey is more similar, but most people in the United States aren't that familiar with their system anyway. And again, as we go forward with this wave of young players and perhaps future waves of young players, perhaps they will consider a change of some kind. But the Union is the most powerful union in sports and arguably the most powerful labor union remaining in this world. And they won't budge easily about arbitration or free agency. So I just don't know if I see a realistic change in the offer.
3: Okay, before we we finish up, one point I want to make, and then one question for Ken. The point is, we had Jeff Passan on talk about Tommy John surgery, and he made the point about year-round baseball maybe being the cause of all these arm injuries for pitchers. It would be interesting If it's the cause of arm injuries for pitchers and also the cause for hitters becoming, um, you know, so good at such a young age, it's an interesting trade-off there. The question is, you know, I kind of presented in the intro these players as a sort of undifferentiated mass of greatness. I was wondering, Ken, if you could just pick one or two of these guys. Bryce Harper, I think we can probably all agree, is kind of a transcendent star that people are going to know who aren't just baseball fans, you know not similar to Derek Jeter in comportment, but similar to him perhaps in fame. I was wondering if you could just identify one or two of these new players that people might not know. And are there any for external reasons beyond their play that you think any of these guys will just become stars, famous names?
2: I would say Correa. And one thing I failed to mention is besides being polished players, a lot of these guys come up and they're polished with, how they deal with teammates, how they deal with media. They're mature beyond their years. Correa is that. He reminds me, and I know people are going to question this as comparison, but when Alex Rodriguez came up, Alex was very polished, very good with media, and really came off well, spoke well. Correa is the same kind of guy, and he can be that transcendent figure if he continues on this path. Seeger is a guy that I don't know is as magnetic a figure, but could be a good enough player in the market of Los Angeles would become that type of player too. Almost a Buster Posey type. Not maybe as quiet as Buster or reserved, but that type of guy. Those two stand out. Lindor brings a special energy and he's a joy to watch. But I would say Correa would be the number one. And Bryant. Bryant too. He has a way about him. When you see him interviewed, it's a dream come true to hear what he's saying. That the humility is there. Everything is there that you would want to hear from a young player. He's respectful to the players in the past, respectful to his teammates. He really is kind of a model. So I would expect him playing in Chicago as well to become a major transcendent type star.
3: You just listed a bunch of guys there. So the, <laughs> <laughs> the future well, is we right. proven. <laughs> All right, well, Ken, you know, it's a shame you've never ascended to the Heights that you had as the sports editor of the Daily Pennsylvanian. Still one of the top baseball media guys out there. Maybe one day you'll uh, get back to the Daily Pennsylvanian Heights. Um, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thank you. I didn't want to ascend anything beyond sports editor of the Daily Pennsylvanian <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I, we, I was the, perfectly fine.
4: It was the best job we ever had, Kenny. That's exactly
2: right.
3: Ken Rosenthal is a senior writer for foxsports.com and a field reporter for MLB on Fox. Hang Up and Listen is sponsored this week by DraftKings. Play to win a million dollars this week and every week this football season at DraftKings.com. With one-week fantasy at DraftKings, you can play when you want, with the team you want. Just pick your contest, pick your team, and pick up your winnings. This isn't fantasy as usual. This is DraftKings. Welcome to the big time. Hurry to DraftKings.com now and use promo code HANGUP to play for free for a shot at one million dollars. And this week's Millionaire Maker event. Enter Hang Up for free entry now only at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. Last week, the New York Times published a story called High School Football, Inc. The piece, by Jerry Longman, examines IMG Academy, a for-profit school owned and operated by the global sports management firm ING. It trains high schoolers in football, basketball, and a whole bunch of other sports. The school actually started out as Nick Bolletieri's Tennis Academy, which hosted prodigies like Andre Agassi and the Williams sisters. IMG took over in 1987. And its facilities include a sports science center to aid with hydration and nutrition (laughs) and a vision lab or mind gym to enhance perceptual and cognitive skills. The IMG Academy football team is only in its third season, but those facilities, a coaching staff with two former NFL quarterbacks and a schedule featuring games on national TV, have attracted players from 21 states and six countries, with six of the nation's top 100 recruits currently on the roster. Longman's piece does a good job exploring coaches and administrators' conflicted feelings about the professionalization of high school sports. IMG's starting quarterback this season is Shea Patterson. He transferred to the school from Calvary Baptist in Shreveport, Louisiana. Patterson's former coach told the Times, it's all driven by money and you can't beat money. At the same time, the coach told Longman that if he had a son with Patterson's talent, he would have to consider sending him to IMG. Mike, what did you make of the IMG Academy story?
1: Well, if your concern is the ideal of either a student athlete or educating kids, it's it's obviously very concerning. It's crass, it's opportunistic, it's cynical. But if you want to compare it not to the ideal or not to some imagined place that probably hasn't existed in America for 40 years, but if you want to compare it to where other top top players are, how they're going to be educated, even schools like you know Don Bosco Prep or Lasalle Academy, I think that it is still a troubling, but a bit more <laughs> a bit more comprehensible, and. You know, it's just the inevitable outgrowth of our societal priorities. I do want to say that I like Rick Scott's decision more than I've ever liked Rick Scott's decision. The governor of Florida vetoed $2 million in state funding for this academy, and I can't believe that a state would even fund it to any extent. That's the worst part of all.
4: Well, here's what I would say in response to that, Mike. That it, we're, it's not clear that IMG is a terrible place to go to school. Well, they do have I hydration. Have to, I mean, many other hydration. places just you have are, water fountains or bubblers. <laughs> well fed. You are well fed. The cafeteria, no lines. It's awesome. Um I mean, A, it's not clear that it's a terrible place to to, to go to school. B, I think we need to put in some historical context. I mean, IMG Academy started as the Nick Bollettieri Tennis Academy, right? And the idea there was that in a sport like tennis, where you're not playing high school on your high school team, you're playing outside of that. Typically, training begins at a much younger age. In order to become a professional, you need to be ready to go by the time you're 16 or 17. It was, you know, sure, there were eyebrows raised at this. But in the end, it's become an accepted, practical approach toward individual sports training. And it's transmogrified into being acceptable for a sport like soccer, where other countries are taking their best athletes and gathering them at club-run academies and schools and developing them into professional players and national team players. So this is just the inevitable outgrowth of that, isn't it, that it's a society where we want some portion of our talented young athletes to get the best opportunities to turn professional. Whether parents are rational deciders about who is able or worthy of that sort of training and attention is an open question because with IMG, if you can afford the $70,000 and your kid is pretty good, you probably can go there.
3: And they also offer financial aid to the more talented members of the uh, football and basketball programs, among others. Mike, I think you might have missed that the school's core values are <laughs> passionate soul, open mind, champion spirit, <laughs> helpful heart, and absolute integrity. It's good that they didn't pick just one. <laughs> <laughs> also that they didn't pick, you know, getting ready to go to college. Ugh. So I didn't hear calculus on that list. There is kind of an admirable transparency here, and we have complained ad nauseum on this show about how, you know, higher education has kind of been changed and transmuted into this system that it never should have been, where high-level sports are melded with it in this way that just seems wrong. And the thing that kind of sticks out to me, Stefan, you mentioned soccer, tennis, also kind of Olympic sports, the sports where the world kicks our ass we kind of envy the European model or maybe the, even the Chinese state-run model where, like, we need to get these kids in at, like, age 10 and just drill, you know, soccer, gymnastics. It's not, it's not or... almost that we envy it. It's that we don't have the resources to match it because of the way those systems are run. But it's in those sports where I think America doesn't do as well as we perceive it should that we sort of think these sports academies maybe there's a place for them. But when it's something like football and basketball where the US dominates, then we think, well, you know, why are we, you know, putting these young athletes into into a system like that? It just seems wrong. Then there's obviously like with golf and tennis, I don't think there's as much of a sense of you're, you know, inflating these kids' expectations and they won't have anything to fall back on. But in their obvious racial reasons and class reasons for that, that we don't feel like we're, you know, selling out a tennis player's future if we don't put him or her in school, if we put her in the Voluntary Tennis Academy.
1: Well, it's the difference between an arms race and catching up. I mean, it's not as if America as a society has a problem of developing excellent football players. (laughs) Absent the academy, we're going to be producing lots of really good NFL players. And I do think when we think about, you know, how to create... We could use some better quarterbacks, Pesca. Come on. We we all know know that. You know, I'm just like going through in my head who are the great players and did they come from the structure? Look, I don't know the backstory of every quarterback, but it does seem just quickly, what, uh, my, my heuristics of, Thinking about the mythological creation myths of great players, they didn't come from these robotic backgrounds, right? J.J. Watt was delivering pizzas and transferred schools, and the Manning sure they grew up with in, in the best circumstance in terms of having an intelligent quarterback in the house. But they were well-rounded kids, you know. In the high school they went to, they went to a great high school for football, but it wasn't like this. It was a real high school. Andrew Luck also. So you take Aaron Rodgers, you know, he he went to he went to a uh, community college and then, and then he went on to Cal. It seems like this is something you could sell to a parent and trick a bunch of parents who will pay the 70000 and subsidize it by poaching a couple of the great players. But it doesn't seem like it's serving the kid. And the other thing I would say is when we talk about catching up in soccer or tennis or whatever, yeah, that's the best way to get our kids better at sports. But I don't think it's the best way to get them better at as people i don't think a tennis academy develops anyone as a person and i think andre agassi would agree which is why you know he with his money mm-hmm. and his effort he founded an alternative to that lifestyle so it's bad for kids i don't even know if it's good for nfl players
3: but are not we like kind of too far down the road to be worrying about this at at this point i mean in a kind of perfect world and if you're an idealist i would totally Agree with you, but this to me just seems like it's bringing to football what already exists in every other sport, and it's not like we're going to be turning that back. And I, it's not like, and it's certainly, I don't disagree in... with anything you're saying. Right, we, we, I just well, feel we're, like we all we're so word... far beyond clutching our pearls.
1: No, like... but we all use the word inevitable, predictable, and that's what it is. I guess to, if you want to argue against it on the basis of what it stands for, not the idealized thing. I, if I had an extremely talented kid, there was no way I would send him to the school because I think he'd be better developed as a football player and a and as a person plus football player going to a really good high school, even one where they emphasize football and had a top program, than going to this school. To me, this is like this is like one of those college prep classes where it's taking advantage of parents' anxiety, but not actually doing better than the best of the establishment that's out there.
4: Well, this is this is just again the inevitable. Opportunity. Outcome of a long buildup to this. This is the apotheosis of the model of the sports-first high school. A lot of these were sham schools. You know, you, you, you hear about these finishing schools where basketball players go to get. Their ACT or SAT up to make them qualified for college. I mean, there are tons of those places, and and the a large number of NBA superstars did that. Fifth people take year, post
3: grad years, post
4: grad years, or just the earlier than post grad years. There's a school in Elkton, Maryland called Eastern Christian Academy that basically has 50 students, all male, all of whom play football. I mean, this is the inevitability of a society that persuades parents to believe that the only route to becoming a college athlete, let alone a professional athlete, is year-round professional style practice and training?
3: Well, so, you know, Shea Patterson is kind of featured in this article. He's gone to several different high schools. He's committed to Ole Miss, you know. Every top football player is going to go to all of these camps, whether it's the Elite 11 quarterback camp, whether it's going to, like, private quarterback guru George Whitfield. And there are problems with just going to, you know, what you typify, Mike, as just like a regular high school with a good football program. You know, we've read so many stories over the year of how those programs, you know, become kind of perversions of a normal high school, how kids can just get passed through and there's no interest in academics, and it's just kind of a sham. That's why I say there's kind of admirable transparency mm-hmm. here, and you kind of know what you're getting. Maybe, like Stefan said, the parent of you know a kid who's maybe not as good, maybe they're being sold on something. But with all the different recruiting services and ranking services, I think that you have to be diluted. You know, if you're a top 100 or 200 or 300 kid, you know that your kid is very good. And so... I can understand the appeal of a school like this where, as opposed to just like a, re- a regular high school, you know what you're getting. I assume that they're correct, that they have to actually go to class. And who knows how rigorous it is, but who knows how rigorous the class is for any top football player at any school?
4: Well, the the, the thing that's missing here, of course, is competition because when you aggregate top 100 football players there's nobody to play even they're they're blowing Practice. out they're blowing Practice. out the, the you know the best teams the teams that show up on ESPN to play each other in
1: these arranged games for money yeah i think that it is true that the that there are horror stories everywhere but i think in general the actual lived experience which isn't going to be reported on is a range, but you're quite likely, if you're going to a middle class, a lower middle class high school, and you're and it's a great football team and you're a great football player, you're quite likely to get a real education. And I don't know that a real education is being gotten here. I mean, there are a few categories of kids who are going to this school. There is the parent who pays $70,000. That I think is insane. And that parent probably is able to send his kid to a really affluent public high school. And they might not have a football team, but if they're a great player, maybe Maybe it is an affluent school like the school that Matthew Stafford went to, what's at Highland Park, where uh, Kershaw was his lineman, or Westlake High School in uh, outside of Austin, where Drew Brees and Nick Foles went to. I mean, these are great affluent schools that are also great academic schools. If you're a middle-class kid, I think it's likely—sure, you might get passed along in classes, but— you know, if you're the kind of parent who really does want that from the education, you wouldn't let that happen to the
3: kid. I don't know. I think it seems like what if you go to like a super shitty school? <laughs> then would you? Then would you go? To, yeah, but then I you're not.
1: Mean, then you're not in the seventy thousand dollars. Yes, for that. No, kid, they
3: get they get full financial aid. I mean, very. Yeah, if you're very one of those few of the top sure. players in the if in the some, country.
1: In general, yeah. rule of thumb: if someone's offering your child a chance to go to a school that's academically superior for free, I take it.
4: The perversion here to me is that is the belief that there is always a better, more sophisticated, more important, more necessary way to train a 14 or 15 or 16 or 17 year old athlete, that it's this holy grail of preparation and determination and creating a sort of the physically perfect child who is ready to play at a college level and then a professional
3: level. Well, we talked about in our first segment, the kind of early specialization. And in baseball, didn't we kind of agree that it can fuel success in the major leagues for a certain Mm -hmm. kind of player? It's interesting in football, though, because it's always been seen as a team game and this kind of specialized skill training for specific positions, especially at an early age, kind of bringing that to football is interesting and different. And who knows whether that will become the norm, even at places unlike IMG Academy.
1: Yeah and but you know how many times on this show have we said that the best practice is to, is to play all the sports the best practice is not to specialize it actually helps your muscles and being good at soccer helps you be better at basketball being good as a pitcher helps you at football I don't know this this school we're all saying it's inevitable I think it's a little hey you could say I'm clutching my pearls I just uh it gives me a more of a queasy feeling than even the rest of the excesses of Can Bishop we come up Norman with another High phrase
3: I, yeah. don't like, I don't like the image of you clutching your pearls. <laughs> um, <I'm, laughs> what are you uh, clutching?
1: Oh, I'm uh, um, holding the card with the plays up to my uh, mouth so you can't read it.
4: I, I would be curious, and Jerry doesn't touch on this in the story, how many of the kids at IMG play more than one sport? Probably zero?
1: close to zero. Yeah, but they hydrate and all hydration for everyone.
3: Last week on NBC, the show American Ninja Warrior ended with a pair of firsts for the series. The first two competitors ever to achieve total victory. I love that phrase. Climbing a 75-foot rope in less than 30 seconds and pressing a red buzzer at the top of Mount Midoriyama, a.k.a. a set, built outdoors on the Las Vegas Strip. (laughs) The man who reached the top fastest was Isaac Caldiero, a 33-year-old rock climber who took the show's top prize of $1 million. The other guy who finished, 36-year-old Jeff Britton, a cameraman, earned nothing from NBC's Skin Flint producers, although you can donate to his GoFundMe page, which is currently sitting at $8,775 of its $1 million goal. The show's three-hour season finale featuring Britton, Caldiero, and other dudes performing feats of mostly upper body strength drew 6.1 million viewers, the most ever for an American Ninja Warrior finale. It's been picked up for a fifth season by NBC. Stefan, and this show is like kind of old-school superstars made for TV mm-hmm. sport combined with competition shows like American Idol. Do you think it's a successful combo you like it
4: i like it i like the final i mean the the earlier shows of which i watched a couple definitely have that character driven contrivance there's the you know there's somebody that has some sort of mental disability. There's a, a woman who rises above and beats a lot of the men, but can't compete when you get to the higher stages. And they don't have a separate competition for women. Do they? So
3: you liked it better without people with mental disabilities or women. <laughs> Once <laughs> you get to not the finale, nice, Josh. That's not that's fair. not what come no, on. Pull the tra- I think say it, you what, know what some I'm trying of them, to say and and is that sure it does trans-
4: it it does transform from a more typical reality program where the cast is really scripted and carefully arranged to a competition among these completely, you know, some of them anyway. And and in the earlier shows there's always like a fat guy and there's a guy that's overcome something. Um, but there's a real there's it transforms into something that's really about these guys that look like sculpted athletes. I mean the caldero is just just your, it, it's your more prototypical a sports show than a reality It becomes show. more of a sports show than a
1: reality show.
3: Yeah. Agree
1: so as i was watching this my girlfriend just kept saying over and over how is this different from gladiators <laughs> and after a while i i made this observation well there are no gladiators <laughs> but it really is a lot like gladiators Zap, Gemini, Lace, Nitro, Bronco. I believe Bronco was from later episodes. But Gladiators was good. Gladiators is fun to watch. I guess That's it's way like-
3: different. There are no people hitting each other with sticks. It's just man against the
1: course. It's man against course. Man against Mount Magauchi. What's it called? <laughs> What's the called? Midoriamo. Mount Midoriamo, which is like, oh, my God, I can't believe they built a fake edifice in Las Vegas. Okay, that's actually in keeping <laughs> the town. The one thing I would say is that to hype it, you do the million dollars winner takes all, and that seems really cool up until it actually happens. And there's some guy who deserves, I don't know, let's say $35,000. <laughs> Can we all agree that he deserves 35 grand? The other question I would raise to you guys is, this guy might be the best ninja But is he the best athlete? If you had to do a course that emphasized athleticism, but also maintained the televised aspect, this is great at television, what would you add to it?
4: Well, he's clearly not the best athlete. I mean, this is really a, a competition geared toward mountain rock climbers. I mean, if you're a rock climber, you should crush this. And it's surprising that it took four seasons for people to realize well, maybe it's not surprising because what ended up happening. This little backstory—I'm not answering your question, Pesca. But in reading about American Ninja Warrior, I mean, what, what what's evolved over the last four seasons is that people started building these things in their backyard. They built the exact replicas of the sets on TV. Gyms have opened dedicated toward ninja training. And the question I have is whether this is authentic ninja. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So
1: I looked up ninja. Can they kill silently? What about about throwing stars?
4: I'm, I'm reading from the Wikipedia entry. Covert agent or mercenary in feudal Japan. Functions of the ninja included espionage, sabotage, infiltration, assassination, and combat in certain situations. So I think the show really needs... To
3: expand its palette.
1: That's right. At the so, top so of the rope, is there needs to be yeah, someone more to assassination. Yeah.
3: Right. That's yeah. what. That's a true test <laughs> yeah. of. What was your question, skill.
1: Mike Pesca? <laughs> to make it to better emphasize athleticism, what should they add?
3: With shows like this, you can never go wrong by just adding more cargo nets. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just need to have a cargo net every every place that you can look. There just isn't stuff that really tests anything, except your upper body strength. So whether it's riding, some sort of uh, bicycle-type implement. Anything that will test your your lower body, I think, would, would be a good addition.
4: Well, but maybe it wouldn't be as exciting an addition because when you're testing upper body strength, there's always the chance that dudes are going to fall. <laughs> right. And falling from Fall's heights... Good.
1: Is excellent television mm-hmm. that's true so what this competition really is and I've just watched it as a viewer and uh, had to think about how it was different from American gladiators it is the strongman competition but it has evolved as our definition of strength has evolved I pro if you listen to me in all my iterations I've said this so often I think I'm in love with this insight but during my lifetime the definition of strength the literal and figurative definition has changed literal used to be being able to lift a lot, now literal is things like bendability and flexibility. And that is just as the metaphorical definition of strength has changed. What does it mean to be a strong man in our society? It used to be you put the burdens of the world on your shoulders. Now it means that you're more flexible. So this is reflecting that. Instead of the brute lifting of strength, it is a yoga-esque, it is a flexibility, it is being able to maneuver your way through obstacles. It actually reflects the world and the zeitgeist at the time which is one of the reasons it's succeeding.
4: Well, it also reflects just the way that that training has evolved. Just going to the gym has evolved. You go to gyms now, and there are... Not even ninja gyms. there, there are um, climbing walls and there are things where you jump and there are things where you throw and right. there are things where you suspend yourself from a
1: contraption. And those two stupid ropes. ropes. everyone's always doing the stupid ropes in the gym. that's such a scam.
3: You <laughs> I know once what I went mean? to a gym, the gym and floppy David... ropes the floppy ropes. I once yeah. went to a gym and saw David Plotz flipping over a tire. I'm not making that up. <laughs> I, had, I actually saw that at the gym. <laughs> um, CrossFit. like there are CrossFit sure. competitions too like it's the crossfitization of working out, and this, it's not like a huge cultural phenomenon, I don't want to overstate it, but you mentioned people building the obstacles, like these videos are huge on YouTube, people watch it as like a family Local thing, just like people watch American Idol, and Casey Catanzaro, the woman who was the first to beat whatever stage of the competition it was that she beat, that she became like a genuine celebrity, celebrity. and I think that what it shows is Reality television, since it kind of took over the airwaves, it's, you know, it's expanded from, you know, dating to rebuilding people's houses to like going undercover as a boss to whatever (laughs) the hell else. But um, I think there was kind of this was a niche that was unfulfilled. There hadn't really been a network show like this since Superstars, which is just such a weird and dated concept of getting, like, Suzanne Somers to, like, you know, or, be or, in a tug, tug, of, swimming, tug right. of war mm-hmm. with Dick Van Patten or something. But this is kind of wholesome entertainment. I think you're conflating Battle of the Network stars with the superstars. Josh was. Yes. I was. Yes. Yes. I'm, I'm showing my age there. I apologize. Okay. But any any kind of excuse to mention Dick Van Patten, I will, I will seize on. <laughs> That's right. But this is popular on TV. I think it shows that there was kind of an unfulfilled niche here of, like, a sports competition show that families could watch together. And it is packaged sort of like you package, um, you know, Olympics, that NBC kind of pioneered that. And even though it was more of a sports show and the finale, like, there are just all these, like, interludes of, you know, this guy's, you know, has his kid's photo with him at all times. And and this person has overcome such and such. And, you know, they build... Isaac Caldero as a busboy, you know, just to try to kind of build up the unlikelihood. But, you know, clearly this guy's like the greatest rock climber ever. You know, it (laughs) reminded me of just Slate colleague Justin Peters is on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. He's a journalist and they build him as like a part time beer vendor because he like sometimes sells beer at Wrigley Field. Like this is how game shows, reality television Works. And it's an effective formula. And, I, and and people like watching it. See, if
1: Trump were really going to be the perfect showman slash president, he would take on the issue of our crumbling infrastructure and say, I'm not going to throw money at it. I'm just going to rebrand it as the unstable bridge. <laughs> Good. Obstacle number three from the course, the unstable bridge. Chris Christie could have done this with the Pulaski Skyway. It's the unstable bridge. Try to cross it, ninjas. You don't even have to spend any money on it.
4: The other thing that, that, that American Ninja Warrior shares with, with uh, reality program and sports programming is the announcers. Just, I loved the enthusiasm.
1: And he's up! Yeah! Liking those legs in! Woo!
4: You get off that butterfly wall. You make that transition to the rope. You save yourself time in the end. It is so serious, and I guess you have to treat it seriously. But there is that unintentional humor in in, in the, f-
3: the funny there. thing is that you know the, the way that I think it's successful, or one, you know, one of the other reasons is that it's you know, quote unquote, regular people, just like on right. American Idol, and the guy Jeff Britton, the cameraman. He really is not an athlete. He's just a He's dude a He's like, in incredible yeah. shape. And that is kind of awesome that it's an opportunity for people to kind of walk on this show and just, you know, reveal that they're, like, amazing 36-year-old athletes. Or, I think or, we all kind of have the fantasy of that. Although the funny thing is, you know, watching football or basketball or something, like, I think we all like harbor kind of delusions of like, oh, you know, I could, I could play a major league baseball mm-hmm. or something. But f- for me, like, I watch this and I'm like. There's less of a chance that I could com- complete, like, one second on the Ninja Warrior course than I could play in an NFL game. Well, there's one
1: thing. There's
4: egal- there is the egalitarian thing. And one announcer said, and this is to your point, Josh, One announcer at one point one of the announcers said, Ian Dory never played high school sports, but now one obstacle
1: from history. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, there is one thing I could do. It's the part where you lift the gates. I could lift at least the first gate. Maybe I the know first I could gate, Pascal. I don't know about the last <laughs> gate. <laughs> the last gate might be hard. And I but could my- not do that after doing the unstable bridge
3: mike another opportunity for you to talk about different concepts of strength it's like you know this this guy uh is not an athlete in any traditional sense but we now see him as one of america's great sportsmen (laughs) due to our new concept of strength there we go a
4: lot of people pissed
3: off about the dude not getting some money though
4: yeah give him some money next in the contract nbc says that it is reconsidering the the payment format they just never expected anybody to win. <laughs> Nobody had ever gotten that far. Nobody had ever summited Mount Midoriyama. Yeah. Then
1: All they're right. going to say, you know, we would pay him, but he hasn't assassinated anyone. <laughs> <laughs> we looked up the definition. Go. 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 Go.
3: Now it is time for After Balls. Our producer, Zach, points out that Mount Midoriyama is redundant because Midoriyama means Green Mountain. Another thing that the uh, producers screwed up. I actually used to watch this show um, when it was the original Ninja Warrior, the American cut-up version when it was on yes. G4. it, was, it was, was like
1: a goofy it lark.
3: It's, well, it's like in the World's Strongest Man genre. I love shows mm-hmm. like this. And they would... Have the uh, Ninja Warrior All Stars? These like there, there's, um, you know, the dude who was like uh, came out dressed as a fireman, you had and, and this is Japan, yeah. And you had people like come out in uh, goofy, goofy uh, costumes all the time. Isn't that it a was, lot like, like a, Magic Mike?
1: <laughs> Isn't that what you're
4: describing?
3: I think a Ninja Warrior themed male strip club would do very well. Let's talk after the show. But the the person that I wanted to highlight. And our afterballs, is the first person to ever achieve total victory on the Japanese version, who is Kazuhiku Akiyama, a the crab fisherman. What's the Japanese show called? Sasuke. It was called Sasuke. Yeah, and it was initially it was a spinoff you might know of the show Muscle Ranking, mm-hmm. just the ranking muscles. Deltoid, <laughs> tricep, toral. <third. laughs> Number one with a bullet, lat. So Kazuhiko Akiyama, crab fisherman, first contestant to ever achieve total victory. The Isaac Caldero of Japan. Mike, what is your Kazuhiko Akiyama?
1: I was watching game one of WNBA first round, New York Liberty against the Washington Mystics. And I was also watching, say, for instance, the Seahawks against the Packers. And the Seahawks against the Packers, every play was stopped and they reviewed it at one point Uh, Al Michaels claimed that a catch in the end zone, well, it might not be allowed because it appears that his right buttock was down. I enjoyed that. And it just struck me that it's surprising, but we have to acknowledge that one of the things that American sports viewers love more than anything is forensic videography. Football is so unbelievably popular, and every play, even every seemingly non-controversial play, is viewed from three, four, five angles, and that's just how we've come to watch sports. Well, This WNBA first round playoff game between the Liberty and the Mystics came down to the wire. With three seconds left in regulation, Tina Charles drives the lane, puts it up, it's in. It looks like the Liberty will be going up one to nothing. But there is some sort of confusion. There is some sort of kerfuffle. Did she get the shot off? So at this point, in any game that we've ever seen, we'd see 16 to 43 angles of if she got the shot off. But in this NBA game, And I don't know if there was just only two people in the truck. I don't know if they fell asleep. Here's what we got to see. We got to see a view from across the court of the three officials looking at a TV of the replay that we desperately wanted to see. Then we saw a cutaway of Bill Lamebeer, WNBA coach of the year, looking confused. Then we went back to the officials and at no point did we actually see the replay to see if she got the shot off. Then it was ruled that she did not get the shot off. And this is just a violation of the compact we have made with television sports. And then they show the replay. And indeed, it shows she doesn't get the shot off. Same thing happens. Critical play in overtime. Liberty up again. There is a tie up who has the ball. We see that it's ruled a jump ball on the floor. But they all consult. They all debate. And we see the debate. We see the consultation at no point do we see the replay about 50 seconds in which doesn't seem terrible but i'm a north american sports viewer it's terrible we see a replay but it's from a bad angle so i guess we got to live with the fact that it's a jump ball Anyway, the Mystics go on to win the game. The series has since been tied. But I do have to think that if the WNBA wants to get much more popular, they have these exciting games and the television production is just wanting. They just, for no reason, no fault of the players, no fault of effort, no fault of anyone except television production, it's just lacking and unappealing given what we've come to expect as a North American sports viewer.
4: Harsh words for the WNBA production crews. <laughs>
3: <All two laughs> this will be them. ringing in the WNBA production trucks. A clarion call. Uh, Stefan, what is your Kazuhiko Akiyama?
4: In Premier League action on Sunday, Manchester United beat Southampton 3 to 2. I was watching on the bike at the Ninja Gym. And it's very hard to pay attention on those little screens at the gym. But about midway through the second half, I noticed that Man U was controlling possession for a long time. The sequence ended with a delicious little through ball by Bastion Schweinsteiger. To Memphis Depay, who rocketed a shot off the post that rebounded to Juan Mata, who finished. I said, Holy shit, and sent myself a note to check how many passes Manu completed before the goal. Not including the rebound off the post, which apparently doesn't count as a pass, it was 44. Manu head coach Louis Van Gaal was pleased with that amount of passes you control the game. Of course, it's a confirmation of our philosophy. I love how filthy rich teams always tout their philosophy as if poorer teams wouldn't kill for the talent that allows them to have one. In any case, 44 passes, a lot of passes, but where does it rank in the pantheon of passes leading to goal? Official stats on number of passes leading to goal weren't calculated in the pre-digital age, but a sports data company called OptaSports Sports. Which boasts that it collects data on 40 sports, including team handball, has been tracking passes to goal in the Premier League and elsewhere since 2010. And there are a lot of, a lot of passes to goal videos on YouTube. Let's start with Opta's Premiership data. In the last five years, there have been more than a dozen goals scored after 20 to 29 passes, just three of 30 to 39, and now also three of 40. 40- or more. Man use 44, however, fell short of a 48 pass goal a year ago by Tottenham against Queen's Park Rangers. But that Spurs goal itself fell three short of a 51 passathon by Liverpool against Bournemouth last December. In a League Cup match, not in the Premiership, in a League Cup match. There's a Reddit thread, news stories, plenty of videos of Mega Pass goals. One very excited YouTube video is titled World Record for Egypt's 37 passes against Algeria in 2010, which, of course, it wasn't. Barcelona and its tiki-taka short passing style, of course, features in many such goals. Including a 41 passer against Real Sociedad last year and a 42 against Chivas in an exhibition game in 2011. With many of those same players, Spain strung together 42 before David Silva scored against Scotland in 2011. Barca rival Real Madrid had a 44 against Ajax in a Champions League match in 2011. 2011, year of the the many pass goal. Uh, in America, the LA Galaxy passed the ball. 26 times before scoring against D.C. United last year. 26 is cute, L.A. Galaxy. To be clear, the number of passes isn't what matters. It's the artistry and build-up toward the goal. The pass-heavy goals that get love are the ones that seem to be the product of deliberate intent from the outset. Maybe a few back-and-forth taps between defenders or a couple of resets toward the back, but always with an apparent buildup in mind. The ones in which every player touches the ball also get raves, and the ones that happen on the big stage. In that category, you got to go with two. Argentina's 25-pass goal against Serbia at the 2006 World Cup. That one is totally worth watching because the ball movement is always powerful and aggressive with a crescendo to the goal by Esteban Cambiaso. My other favorite is situational time and place and team. That would be the Netherlands. Only 16 passes, but from the kickoff to a takedown of Johan Cruyff in the box and a penalty by Johan Neeskens to start the 1974 World Cup final against West Germany. Total football at its finest. Sadly, the Dutch lost 2-1. to Final thought, how many passes usually result in a goal? There have been plenty of studies, starting with the landmark 1968 paper, Skill and Chance in Association Football by C. Reap and B. Benjamin in the Journal of the Royal Statistical Society, which found that 80% of goals were scored after three or fewer passes studies of the 1990 and 94 World Cups found around 80% of goals scored after four or fewer passes, but a count from the 2012 Euros was 62% of goals after four or fewer passes and 20% of eight or more conclusion style of football. Today, modern, more passing. Sometimes it leads to goals. Sometimes it doesn't. Josh, what's your Kazuhiko Akiyama?
3: So... There are probably long odds that I would be the first hangout panelist to talk about the new extra point in an afterball. Mm-hmm. Zero chance. Zero chance. But, hey, sometimes the long shot comes in. Wow. So we're at 94%. So far this season, there have been uh, nine missed extra points. Uh, that's a 33-yard distance. Uh, yes, it is, goddammit. In the NFL this year. They moved it back, if you haven't been listening to the show or haven't been watching any NFL game. So that's nine extra points missed compared to eight all of last season, um, 94% success rate. Steelers coach uh, Mike Tomlin against the 49ers changed uh, his strategy, known as kind of a conservative dude. um, But they went for two in the first half of their game. It was the first time since 1998 that a two-point conversion had been scored in the first half of an NFL game. Indianapolis Colts did it. Um, So the interesting thing, if you're interested in uh, football strategy and analytics, is how does this change the calculus of whether to go for two? It's obviously already changed it with um, a coach like Mike Tomlin going for it in the first half. So before, if you wanted to think it through expected value of an extra point, pretty close to one, you're going to make it 98 or 99% of the time. So 0.98 points per extra point. There's a lot of different numbers you can look at as far as two-point proficiency. Last year, it was uh, 47.5% conversions, 27 of 56. Um, There are other numbers you can look at that's between 94 and 2012 that I've seen cited, where it's around 45% of two-pointers got converted in the NFL. Brian Burke, who we've had on uh, the show before, or maybe we haven't had him on the show before. Anyway, he's a guy who exists in the world, and you should follow and read. Um, He uh, looked at this and between 2000 and 2009, he had the number at around 48%. That's if you take out like botched snaps and, you know, just bad stuff in the data. So it's somewhere between 45 to 50%. And so it's basically a break-even proposition. Expected value, if it's 50%, is one point per two-point conversion. If it's 45%, it's, you know, 0.9. And then if you adjust it based on whether you have a good o- offense, based on whether the other team has a good defense, it's there's not really one right answer. But I wrote about this a couple of years ago. There is one case where it always makes sense to go for two where coaches haven't seemed to realize it yet. They always will go for two if they're down by eight or if you're, you know, down by 11 to get within a field goal. There's, you know, there's a card and they'll, always make the quote unquote right decision in those cases. But the the interesting one where they haven't figured it out yet is if you're down by fourteen, very close to the end of the game, and you need two touchdowns. So, you know, coming down to the end of the fourth quarter, you're down fourteen, score a touchdown, coaches will reflexively just go for one, oh, you gotta get within seven. If you score another touchdown, you'll, you know, kick another extra point, you'll go to overtime. And this is the fallacy that you see come up a lot in the NFL, you see if a team is down by three, instead of playing for the win, they'll play for the tying field goal to go for overtime. Coaches see going to overtime as victory, when in fact, it's only half a victory. You only have a 50% chance to win. And what's that and other so, half, Josh? Uh, you'll lose. Yes. Important to note. <laughs> it's not total victory. It's half a victory. <laughs> total victory never happened in the NFL. <laughs> Where you've won and also the entire other team died yeah. uh, on the team, on the, on the field. So- Here's the rationale behind going for two in that situation. You are down by 14, you get it to eight. If you go for two, you make it, you're down six, then you score another touchdown, kick out to 20, you win the game. If you miss it, you still have a chance to tie and get it into overtime. If you're down eight, score the other touchdown, go for two, make it. And I ran a piece on this. I wrote it a couple years ago and using some assumptions about, you know, two-point conversions being made 48% of the times, extra points being made 100% of the time. It was about a 60% chance of victory, assuming that you scored the two touchdowns, versus a 50% chance if you scored the two touchdowns and went to overtime. So that's a pretty big difference. It's not like, you know, you get like a 30 percentage points better, but 10%, 10 percentage points is a lot. So it'll be interesting to see how thinking evolves here because... That study was done with the assumption that extra points will be made 100% of the time. Now, if it's around 94%, it's even more logical to go for two at the end of the game. And yeah, this is something that, you know, even with coaches going for two more, the kind of notion that sending a game to overtime is a success is something that I think will be harder to crack because it's all about the avoidance of looking stupid. Like, that's what coaches want to do. They don't want to be criticized for you know throwing into the end zone when they when they could have run. They don't want to you know do something that'll be you know if, if it doesn't succeed, you'll be you know the subject of critique on Monday. We go call for it a Monday touchdown
4: from the quarterback. Go for a touchdown from the one yard line in the first quarter. And there is which nothing didn't do yesterday.
3: There is nothing that would something. make you look more stupid than going for two down by fourteen and missing it. Like you can explain the logic all that you want and you can explain the numbers but it's just because nobody does it um that you know the person who does it'll have to be Bill Belichick just somebody who doesn't give a fuck like it's it just looks stupid and so
4: oh this puts a lot of pressure on them to score that second touchdown and convert if they miss here
3: yeah so i'm just doing my part as i do i'm sure i'll i'll have to you know mention it many times but the coaches will, will get the message just just like they got the message with that stopping the clock on the defensive penalty thing
4: by the way, loving The Longer Extra Point.
3: Yeah. You want to watch it.
4: Some kicker was complaining about it the other day. I do not understand why the kicker would complain about The Longer Extra Point.
3: We'll keep track of the evolution of Stefan's feelings mm-hmm. on The Longer Extra <laughs> Point as the Ooh, years go by. Oh, I'll let everyone know. <laughs> All right. We'd love your feedback when what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hang Up and Listen on iTunes. You can find us by going to itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, you can leave us a comment and a rating. Be helpful. People will find us if you leave us a nice comment and a nice rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein, and the executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers hang up and listen as part of the panoply network check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash panoply remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening
1: lucky land casino asking
0: people what's the
1: weirdest place you've gotten lucky
0: lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office